Well, let us continue in worship by opening our Bibles to Acts chapter 3. And this morning we are considering together verses 19 through 21. Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Now listen to the reading of God's word. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Well, this morning I want to begin by setting this uh, portion of scripture in its original context. Uh, Some of you will remember that this is coming out of what is known as Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit. And if you look at chapter 2 of the book of Acts, it's very similar in terms of its structure to chapter three, you have a miracle taking place. The Holy Spirit descends, rushing the mighty rushing wind and all the supernatural events, people's reaction responds to that event. And then Peter's explanation of that in a sermon. Well, we have the same happening here in chapter three. You have a miracle happening. People's reaction to that miracle, the healing of a crippled man, and people are responding. They are wondering what this means. And now Peter then launches into a sermon to explain the meaning of these things. So we have a very similar pattern taking place in Acts chapter 3 as we had in Acts chapter 2. Now we have looked at the miracle, verses 1 through 10. We have looked at the explanation, verses 11 through 18. This morning, we're looking at the command. The command, verses 19 through 21. And what is the command? Very simple, very straightforward. Repent and turn back. Now, why are these verses important to us? What is the relevancy of these verses to us? We are not the men of Israel. We're not living in first century Jerusalem. So why should we care? Well, I believe these verses are answering and addressing three very important questions for us to consider this morning. The first one is this. What is the need of the moment? What is the need of the moment in all the world? In all the world. I believe these verses are going to answer that question. The second question is this, what would happen if the church faithfully fulfilled its role in the world? What would the world look like? And the third question, why should we even care about this world? Aren't most people lost, rebellious anyway? Why should we care about this world and what happens to this world? I believe we're going to see the answer to these questions as we go through these verses. So please listen well. The first point coming out of verse 19, 
is this one universal command. One universal command. What is that command? Well, repent and turn back. This is what the apostolic message demands. This is what the apostolic message demands. In fact, here we see a case in which the importance of words is powerfully illustrated. In verse 19, we see the one word that serves as a bridge to connect two main ideas. Those of you who like grammar, do you know what that word is in verse 19? So the very beginning is in fact, let me see one, two, three, four is the second word. I'm giving you a clue. Therefore, it is a critical word for it teaches us that the message of the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus, that message is in and of itself a message with a call embedded in it. In other words, if you hear someone telling you that there is a king in heaven, a Lord to whom all authority has been given in heaven and also where? On earth, the strong implication is that you, the listener, the listener are summoned to do something about it. You cannot listen to those words and remain indifferent at the same time as though those words don't apply to you. And this is precisely what we see here in Peter's interaction with his original audience. The word therefore is included because the call to repent and turn back flow out directly from the message that Jesus is Lord. Now the immediate question we need to ask ourselves is as follows. What is entailed in this call? When Peter issues this command, what is it that he's calling these people to do? Well, I identify several features of this call to repentance, and I'm going to list them for you. First, don't miss the fact that this is a command. Don't miss the fact that this is a command. It is written in the imperative mood. Have you realized, have you ever realized that the gospel call comes with a gospel command? The gospel call comes with a gospel command. Every time we preach Jesus, we are speaking on behalf of God and telling men and women, boys and girls to repent. In other words, the gospel call does not come with a suggestion. It would be nice if you would repent of your sins. It is a command. This is why in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, we will hear Paul tell Gentiles, not Jewish people, Gentiles, the Athenians, that God now commands all people everywhere to do what? To repent. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Hence the word I use in your notes, universal. This command 
is not confined to just the men of Israel. The call to repent is issued every time the Lord Jesus is preached because his lordship demands not only faith in his name, but also a turning away from all other idols and sins. Now, that's the first thing to notice. It is a command. Second, the call to repentance comes with a high degree of specificity. Did you notice that? Notice how Peter identified the specific sins of his audience, all of which had to do with their rejection of the Messiah. I believe this is true repentance. When we repent, we don't simply repent of the general idea of sin, but we must repent of actual sins we have committed. In connection to this, remember that the Bible has a very specific definition of sin. What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Therefore, listen to this, repentance implies a transcendental standard by which we must measure our lives. Sin exists because there is a standard which has been transgressed, namely God's moral law. Third, the call to repentance is a confrontation with pride. Peter did not pull any punches. He confronted his audience with the painful reality of their evil ways. This is why repentance, that repentance which is biblical and true, cannot be detached from a degree of spiritual sorrow. Or as Paul calls it, godly grief. It is simply not possible to truly repent of sins without undergoing some level of grief. I understand that this may vary from person to person, but the element of grief is always there in repentance. The Corinthians certainly knew this from experience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, Paul said to the Corinthians, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. Remember, they were grieved because of the first letter. He confronted their sin. I rejoice, rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into what? repenting for you felt a godly grief for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Whereas worldly grief produces death. You cannot separate repentance from godly grief because repentance is in part the acknowledgement of sinfulness. Now this is not a popular message. I understand that, but we don't preach because things are popular, but there is more. There's a fourth element here that it is essential to understanding repentance. Notice how Peter used two words, repent and what turn back. You know what turn back is to be converted conversion. It refers to change inner change. Why the two words together? Well, I believe Peter used them together because the call is both comprehensive and permanent. It is ongoing. It never stops. One commentator said it like this, and I quote, the exhortation to repent 
is here accompanied by another exhortation to be converted or literally to turn. It may either be taken as the same thing with repentance or as the outward change of life corresponding to the inner inner change of mind or as a generic term denoting the entire moral revolution of which repentance is a necessary part, end quote. I believe he is correct, especially at the end. We don't have to choose among those options. Repent and turn back is an all-inclusive call. It involves all of your life, all of your life. So let me see if I can put it in different way, in a different way, using different words by quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said this, and I quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and what? Die. He bids him come and die. The command to repent and turn back is a command to die and live. Die to sin and live to God, die to sin and live to God. This is the ongoing life cycle of a believer, of a Christian. We are always dying to sin. We're always living to God. We're always mortifying sin. We're always living to God. So let me ask you, my Christian friend, you who profess to know Christ, are you Dying and living. Are you dying to self and living to God daily? Well, what does that mean? It means this. It means to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, as the apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. And what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Brothers and sisters, the call to repent and turn back or to repent and be converted has not changed in the least. You have to put your sins to death. You have to put your sins to death. In light of this, and this is just for further consideration repentance is the need of the moment repentance is the need of the moment the need of the moment is for the church to faithfully call people to repent and turn back from their sins we are well aware now that repentance and conversion are under attack Precisely, these two words are being the object of the wrath of the secularists who don't want God in their lives, whether private or public. Please understand this. All anti-conversion laws that are, being, are beginning to surface are essentially anti-gospel laws. In fact, I could even take it this further. The best way 
the best way to destroy a society is by doing away with repentance. The best way to destroy any society anywhere in the world is by removing the need to repent. Because if you remove the need to repent of sin, you begin to sear people's conscience, which will by necessity lead to devastating, devastating results. We're commanded. We're commanded to call people to repent and be converted from all sins. So we are clearly, my brothers and sisters, you need to realize this. We are entering here into the non-negotiable realm that says we will obey God rather than men. This is what our Canadian brothers are facing right now with Bill C4. They have entered the realm in which they must say we will obey God rather than you, rulers and authorities and powers and kings. We will obey God. So if men say no more repentance, no more conversion, we must continue to say repent and turn back. We have no alternative because we serve a king who calls men everywhere to repent and turn back. Why? Because with repentance comes blessing, which is our second point. Notice how Peter mentions three specific blessings. The first thing that I want you to notice is that the blessings Peter is about to mention are the direct outflow of repentance. They are uh, connected to what Peter is calling these men to do. Repentance brings these blessings about. The second thing I want you to notice is that even though these blessings are presented separately, they are a unit. They are a unit. All these blessings are interrelated. And third, each blessing begins with the word that in, your, in, in the Bible. That. Every time you see the word that means another blessing. So what is the first blessing that comes with repentance? Forgiveness of sins. Repent and turn back. And here's the first blessing that your sins may be blotted out. Here then is the first blessing that comes with repentance and conversion. And it is truly a blessing. The expression blotted out means obliterated, destroyed. And this is quite an astonishing thing to say, especially when you consider the original audience to whom Peter addressed these words. Peter was speaking to the men of Israel. This was the generation that killed the author of life, Jesus Christ. These are the ones who asked for a murderer to be given to them in exchange for the holy and righteous one. Now, this being the case, how can then Peter tell them that their repentance will obliterate their sin? How can this possibly be in light of the evil they have committed against the very son of God? Here's the answer. Their sin against Jesus did not prevent God from bringing salvation. In fact, their sin was used by God to bring salvation to the whole world. 
Therefore, God says, let them repent. Let them acknowledge their sin, mourn for their sin, turn away from their sin and be forgiven. But consider the force of this blessing. Your sins can be obliterated, destroyed, done away with, which only reminds us that when God forgives, he does not do so reluctantly or begrudgingly. When God forgives, he does so permanently and definitively. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The second blessing, avoidance of judgment. Avoidance of judgment. Repent and turn back. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. According to one theologian, the times of refreshing Peter speaks of has the sense of consolation, consolation. Remember this, this was an evil generation. This is the generation that literally crucified the Lord. Now they are beginning to understand the true weightiness of their evil. They killed the Messiah. They rejected their savior. As such, this particular generation of Israelites were under severe condemnation from the Lord. Indeed, many of you know their judgment came historically in the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in the year 70 AD. In 70 AD was the year in which the Old Testament Jewish era came to an end. And I believe it is in view of this impending judgment that Peter speaks of times of refreshing. Hence the idea of consolation. God was about to bring judgment on the nation of Israel along with its religious system. The whole Jewish era was represented in the temple and they were about to come to a violent end. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. But here's Peter telling them that there is a way of escape. That through repentance, they can avoid the coming judgment of the Lord, meaning the burden of God's just condemnation upon them can be lifted. Thus, times of refreshing can come. Well, what is the application for us? Well, likewise, the Bible teaches that there is impending judgment of God coming upon all humanity. But you and I, too, can escape it through repentance of sin. Repentance brings relief from judgment. But as if this were not good enough, there's yet a third blessing associated with repentance. What is that blessing? Christ's saving presence. Repent and turn back, says Peter, that he, meaning the father, may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. What in the world does that mean? Is this a reference to the second coming of Christ? There's a sense in which this could be a reference to the second coming of Christ, 
The case could be made for this idea. However, I believe there is a better option. When looking at the context, which brings us back to Pentecost itself, it becomes more clear to me that the sending of Christ that Peter is speaking about is not a reference to the second coming, but to the sending of the Holy Spirit. I say this for three primary reasons. First, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Therefore, the Spirit's presence is Christ with us. Christ comes to make his dwelling with us through the person of the Spirit. Second, I believe this is a reference to the Spirit rather than the second coming, because the second coming was thousands of years removed from these people. It would be rather strange for Peter to be talking about something so far away into the future when the other two blessings were immediate. And third, Peter is about to tell us in the next verse that Jesus must remain in heaven. Jesus, the God man is physically in heaven away from us. Thus the sending of Christ, I believe is a reference to the spirit coming to us to save, to save. This is a reference to Christ saving presence. The spirit was poured out in Pentecost in order to effectively communicate the saving work of Jesus to all the worlds. So let me give you some thought for further consideration here. Repentance is followed by blessing. Repentance is followed by blessing. Quite obvious, but quite important. Even though the circumstances have changed from the original audience, I believe the blessings of repentance are, are the same. We have no reason to believe the contrary. So consider this with me. What would happen if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ faithfully fulfilled its role in the world by calling men and women, boys and girls to repent and be converted? Blessings would follow. Just think of the first blessing Peter mentioned, forgiveness of sin. What would the world look like if more and more and more people knew their sins to be forgiven in Christ? I can tell you what the world would look like. It would look like people with a clear conscience. People with a clear conscience. This is one of the many reasons we must take a stand against things like Bill C4. Whether in Canada, the United States, or anywhere else. To go along with things like these, it is the equivalent of hatred for humanity. We don't want people with seared conscience. We want people with a clear conscience. And there is only one way for us to live with a clear conscience. And that is by knowing where we stand with God. So no, no, we will not accept anti-conversion laws. Rather, we will continue to love people 
by calling them to repent and be converted, not only of their sexual sin, but of all sins, so that their sins may be blotted out. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and so that he may send the Christ in the spirit. So let me be blunt. Should you or I or anyone else support any initiative that seeks to leave people in their sin, we would be standing against Christ himself. Christ himself. You cannot, if you're a believer, if you claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot and you will not support these things. Which leads us into our next and final point, two glorious realities. What was the first point? One universal command, three specific blessings, and now two glorious realities. In an ultimate sense, brothers and sisters, the call to repent and be converted stands upon realities that transcend human existence. After mentioning the blessings that flow out from turning away from sin and toward God, Peter now speaks of Jesus in the most exalted terms possible. There are two realities that undergird the call to repentance and even our relationship to God. And even these two realities undergird are determinative for all of history. Not only redemptive history, the church, but all of history in all the world. What is the first glorious reality? The ancient doors have been lifted up. I'm going to try to make sense of this as we go. The ancient doors have been lifted up. Consider what it says at the beginning of verse 21. Speaking of Jesus, Peter says, whom heaven must receive. The word must in the Greek is a very frequent and prominent word, especially in the book of Acts. The word means it is necessary. It is necessary. This is divine necessity. Translated here as must. Heaven must receive Jesus. Have you ever thought what that means? Heaven must receive Jesus. Jesus, according to one scholar, this term appears 22 times in Acts alone, plus 18 more times in the gospel of Luke. Now, Luke wrote both Acts and the gospel. So clearly this term, this word was really important to him. This term implies, listen, the impossibility of an alternative. The impossibility of an alternative. In other words, as we wait for the second coming of the Lord in this inter-advental between the first and the second coming of the Lord, there is no other place for Jesus to be but in heaven. He cannot be anywhere else but in heaven. No other place is possible. Jesus cannot be physically on earth or anywhere else at this time. Heaven must receive him, meaning Jesus of Nazareth, the God man, must be enthroned at the right hand of the father at this present time. There is no alternative. It is impossible. Heaven must receive him. But why? 
Well, after thinking and meditating on this verse for a good while, a specific psalm was brought to my mind. And you probably know which one it is because I gave you a clue. Psalm 24. And I'm going to ask you to turn there with me. Psalm 24. This is uh, truly beautiful. Psalm 24, and I want us to focus on verses 7 through 10. After we read these verses, that little sub-point in your notes will begin to make sense. Psalm 24. What is the title of Psalm 24? The King of Glory. Listen to verse 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Psalm 24 gives us a window into heaven. It describes a king entering into glory. Not just any glory, but celestial glory. The gates and the doors that must be open for this king to enter are ancient, which only reminds us of the ancient of days. Therefore, these ancient doors are a reference to a realm that is as old as God himself. In this scene, these doors are commanded to be lifted up. Why? Well, the king of glory is on his way. Just imagine the scene. Mighty angels in all their celestial glory stopped and watched what is unquestionably the most glorious of all events in the entire universe. The Lord of glory entering into heaven. Well, who is this king of glory? The Bible tells us explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, the apostle Paul identifies the king of glory with these words. Don't miss this. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified. Who? The king of of glory. Astonishingly, the central character of Psalm 25 is none other than Jesus, the one from Nazareth. So when were these ancient doors commanded to open? When did this, this, this king enter his glory? Peter already answered that in Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Jesus, the Lord of glory, has already entered heaven. He is exalted at the right hand of God. And now, once again, Peter tells us heaven must receive him. The Lord came down in his incarnation. And what happened during his birth? Angels showed up and praised him. And they sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to man. In his birth, 
Angels sang praises on earth in his exaltation. Angels are singing his praises in heaven. Now there is a king in glory to whom all honor and glory and praise belong forever and ever and ever. There is a man in heaven to whom all glory belongs forever and ever. The God, man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the ancient doors have been lifted up. Heaven itself, listen, heaven itself had no alternative but to open its gaze and let the exalted Jesus take his rightful place as Lord and Christ. The King of Glory has entered in, which leads us to our second subpoint: the restoration of all things has begun. Heaven must receive him until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. A critical element here is to understand the word until. Heaven must receive Jesus, which is already has received him as the conquering king, until the time for restoring all things, etc. <clears throat> the word until does not entail, it is not meant to suggest that the restoration brought about by Jesus Christ is somehow on hold, waiting for a later time. Now, obviously, we understand that the full restoration of all things is not yet here. We are not in the new heavens and the new earth. This does not mean, however, that Jesus is not right now in the process of restoring all things. Remember, remember, never forget that all authority. How much authority? All authority has been given to Jesus in both heaven and on earth earth. The word until has the sense of duration. A good way to understand it is by looking at first Corinthians 15 verse 25, where we read that Jesus, listen to this verse, first Corinthians 15, 25, Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death is death. The first or the last, the last, that word matters. The last enemy matters in first Corinthians 15, 24, 25 teaches clearly that the reigning of Christ and the putting of his enemies under his feet are happening simultaneously. The last enemy Jesus will destroy definitively will be death. The word last implies what? Last, that's right. There's a pretty normal implication of the word last. The word last implies there is an order. There is a sequence. There is a progression. As Jesus rules, his enemies are being destroyed. As he rules right now, his enemies are being destroyed. The last one will be death. In the meantime, other enemies are being destroyed. Likewise, Jesus must be in heaven until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. There is a time when the restoration will be full and consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. However, the restoration is already taking place. Isn't that exciting? Is it Orb? Yeah. Yeah, we have a king in heaven who is restoring all things. I guess it's good. 
I'll take it. This is perfectly illustrated in our salvation. Consider this. We have been made new creations in Christ. We are being made new creations in Christ. And we will be made new creations in Christ. Which one is true? All of it. All of it is true. The restoration brought about by Jesus right now is cosmic. It reaches into every inch of the universe. Jesus is already exercising his authority over all things. The fall of Adam brought decay into the world, all of the world. The crippled man was an illustration of this decay. But his healing was an illustration of what Jesus is doing in all the cosmos. Further proof that this restoration is cosmic and is happening right now is the fact that Peter mentioned the prophets. Consider with me briefly what was spoken by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 35. The entire chapter is describing the future. How long before the coming of Christ did Isaiah prophesy? 700 years. Very good. Very good. 700 years before the coming of Christ. So Isaiah was looking into the future 700 years. 700 years later came Jesus. But listen to how Isaiah described the future. Isaiah 35. Isaiah is describing a new world. Isaiah speaks, for example, of the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice. And it is in this context that he also says this. Listen to these words. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? What did the lame man do right after being healed by Peter? Luke explicitly tells us in verse eight that he entered the temple walking and leaping and praising God. The Lord Jesus in his death, resurrection, exaltation, and present reign has inaugurated the new creation. The restoration of which the prophets spoke has begun. Listen to how Dutch theologian Herman Babink beautifully summarizes all of this. And I quote, at the resurrection, Jesus received the glory that according to his Godhead, he already had before. Became the Lord of glory, the power of God. Obtained a name above every name, that is the name Lord, and thereby the right, the authority, and the power to exercise lordship over all creatures as mediator, prophet, priest, and king, to subdue his enemies, to gather his people, and to regain the fallen creation for God. End quote. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is restoring all things, and Jesus will restore all things. So for further consideration, and we will end here, repentance. Repentance, my brothers and sisters, is rooted in Christ's universal dominion. Repentance is rooted in Christ's universal dominion. Peter one once stood condemned for denying the Lord even in front of a little girl. Now Peter stands boldly for the Lord 
calling entire crowds to repentance. Why the change? Peter is now convinced. Peter is now convinced that there are simply no limitations. There are no boundaries to the kingship of Jesus. All people everywhere must bow the knee before Christ. And this is precisely why we do the same. As we close, please think of the following. When we Christians call men and women, boys and girls to repent and be converted by believing in Christ Jesus, we are participating in the restoration of all things. Have you thought of that? When we faithfully fulfill our call to call, to call men and women to repent of their sins and be converted, we are participating in the restoration of all things. When a sinner comes to repentance and faith in Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel, we are witnessing the Lordship of Jesus in action, in history. But ultimately, repentance is a must because Jesus is Lord. Brothers and sisters, our primary motivation for engaging with the world, with the gospel message, is Christ's Lordship. Our primary reason for caring about the world is also Christ's lordship. This is his world. He died for this world. Therefore, we dare not compromise the need for repentance. For as people repent, blessings flow. Sins are forgiven. Times of refreshing are experienced and Christ comes in the spirit to save. Brothers and sisters, let us love those in the grip of darkness. Let us love the homosexuals. Let us love the transgender. Let us love the adulterer. The drunks, the abortionists, the immoral, the thieves. But let us love them according to truth. They need to repent and come to Christ. Jesus is in heaven. We are on earth and he has sent us to carry the message of both his victory and his power to save the world. And because his spirit is with us, success is guaranteed. Brothers and sisters, I leave you with this note of encouragement. Jesus will inherit the nations. They are his. Of this, we are sure. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this simple reminder of the importance of not compromising the message that you have called us to proclaim throughout the world. That because Jesus is Lord of all things, God now commands everyone everywhere to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for he does indeed rule over all things. And so father help us to be bold and also to love, to extend mercy, but to never compromise this message, knowing that in repentance, there are so many, many blessings that come. So use us Lord to spread your kingdom on earth. And these things we pray in Jesus name. Amen.